I'm Michael Hainsworth. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted Canada's need to break down interprovincial trade barriers. But what would eliminating the roadblocks and cleaning up the patchwork nature of our regulatory landscape mean for the national economy? And with a quarter million Canadians moving to a new province every year, how do we ensure their certifications are qualifications? Trevor Tu is an associate professor of economics at the University of Calgary and a research fellow of the School of Public Policy. Ryan Manucha is a Frederick Sheldon Fellow at Harvard University. Ryan started us off by tackling the importance of economic interdependence. I think with the pandemic, we've seen sort of a retraction in that, you know, a, a movement towards a period of global isolationism. We saw issues with supply chain uh, readiness and durability, uh, especially through the, the, the period of April and May. And I think it's really brought to the fore the importance of interprovincial trade and ensuring that while we may not be able to rely on our partners abroad, in, especially in periods like the pandemic, we should be able to rely on one another to keep the flow of goods coming. Globally, the degree of economic interdependence was, even prior to the pandemic, really difficult to overstate where supply chains are long and complex and span multiple countries, where you have a producer in one country making an input that is used by a producer in another country to produce a good that is shipped to yet a third or a fourth country. So roughly half of total global trade crosses more than one border before it gets to the end consumer. And so when disruptions occur in China or in Italy or in many other countries, as we saw through the pandemic, that has ripple effects throughout the global economy. Then combine that with increased protectionist sentiment that's that's kind of being amplified by um, the current U.S. administration, but also developments in many countries around the world, I think. Uh, you know, I definitely agree with Ryan that internal trade between provinces within countries is something whose value has increased, I think, after COVID-19. So as policymakers here federally, provincially think about trade, I think we need to think more about internal trade than international trade that tends to get much more of the attention uh, in prior years. In addition, I would go so far as to say that it's an, an important time. It's almost, you know, it's it's a juncture at which we should be looking within um, and, and sort of saying to ourselves, okay, uh, this is an opportunity to really recalibrate and rethink about what it is that we have that's in place that governs internal trade. What are the rules we have in place? And where are the roadblocks? Where are the restrictions that we can tackle at home um, when even before the pandemic, we saw the Trump administration uh, blockade the nomination of new uh, appellate court judges to the WTO, which essentially has, has uh, neutered that institution for the time being. With perhaps global multilateralism on the wane, we need to be starting to think and see this as an opportunity to uh, advance internally the structures that would be conducive to further growth when uh, this may not be a period of uh, international collaboration, at least for the short term or if not medium term. Can we quantify, though, what eliminating internal trade barriers and cleaning up the patchwork nature of our regulatory landscape mean for the national economy? Yeah, th there's quite a bit of work on that, actually. Um, some work by myself uh, and other researchers, some really excellent work from Statistics Canada, actually, recently as well. 
So there's a couple of questions here. First, how large are internal barriers to trade between provinces? And then second, what are the potential benefits from lowering those barriers uh, or potentially eliminating them? So on the first question, if you measure uh, who buys from which supplier uh, in Canada compared to uh, what we estimate would be the trade flows absent those trade costs, you can get a, a sense of how big the costs might be. I won't go into all the, the details behind the techniques, but basically the results from my own work and from Statistics Canada suggest that internal trade barriers in Canada might be somewhere between 5 to maybe as high as 15%. So imagine a hidden GST at the very least embedded in the goods and services that we buy, or potentially three hidden GSTs. Uh, so this has a pretty significant effect on internal trade. If we were to lower those trade costs and imagine a hypothetical situation where we actually eliminate them completely, so drop that 5% to zero or the 15% to zero, internal trade as a share of Canada's economy might grow to be as large as international trade. So typically trade between Canada and other countries is, is much larger than trade between provinces. It's about one third of the economy in terms of international trade, whereas internal trade is about 20%. But if there were no internal trade barriers, uh, then the two flows might be of equal size. What that would do in terms of economic activity and productivity and GDP is it would allow the highly productive competitive firms to expand, expand the size of their reach and their market, hiring more individuals and deploying more capital. And the lower productivity firms would, would shrink, releasing their employment and capital to the higher productivity firms. And so overall, the gains in aggregate, based on some recent work uh, published through the, the IMF uh, research team that I was involved in there, suggests that if you were to eliminate those internal trade barriers, overall, uh, GDP in Canada might grow by about 4%, which might not sound like a lot, but that's, you know, 4% on an over $2 trillion economy adds up to, you know, potential gains of nearly $100 billion. But don't these barriers exist to protect the GDP of those individual provinces? I wouldn't say that they protect the GDP and overall economic activity of those provinces. They protect certain producers potentially, within each province. And this is kind of the classic problem for trade liberalization efforts. There are, of course, uh, winners and losers, like with most policy changes. And most protectionist policies are there because of some pretty intense lobbying in some cases by firms that benefit from them. But that detracts from the size of the overall economy by shrinking its productivity. But those costs are diffuse and spread across the millions of, of consumers who don't notice the slightly higher price and the slightly lower real incomes that, that they have as a result. And then, you know, another feature, maybe Ryan can talk more about this, is the internal trade barriers are really uh, just differences in regulations, differences in standards and certifications, and potentially many um, potentially even most, don't exist for explicitly protectionist objectives. It's just that provinces kind of converged randomly to, 
to different rules and regulations that has a, an unfortunate side effect of inhibiting internal trade. Yeah, Ryan, what about those credentials and certification issues? A piece of paper in one province may not be acceptable in another. Absolutely. And uh, Professor Toome absolutely is, is very accurate in what he's saying about um, you know, concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Um, there are two types of sort of instances where you'll see sort of a trade conflict. One are sort of the very public and, and you know, sensationalized uh, instances of trade barriers where it's explicitly to protect. And one instance was in early 2018 when Alberta instituted a wine boycott against wine from BC in response to some BC policies. Now, that's a very flagrant um, instance of protectionism, but uh, Professor Toome is right in, in identifying that it's the, the, the vast majority of what we'd call trade barriers are almost are, are in those unassuming regulatory differences. Take the uh, construction codes, for example. Now, construction codes have been developing in each of the individual provinces for uh, over 100 years with jurisdiction uh, constitutionally being with the provinces uh, for the most part. And construction codes come out of sort of local events, accidents, um, local policy developments, and even local uh, production inputs. Um, They kind of converge in the form of what we think of as very technocratic building codes, but in part are sort of, you know, socially conceived. And once you have these entrenched modes of operation, like with building codes, it becomes a little difficult to sort of suddenly recalibrate and and harmonize, which is something that uh, is currently underway, is a a national effort under the Canadian Free Trade Agreement to uh, reconcile these differences across um, all the building codes across Canada. Um, But it's, it's difficult. It is hard work. It takes a lot of discussion and 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 detail-oriented focus um, to really tackle these barriers that, in the aggregate, as Professor Tum identifies, in the aggregate produce substantial costs to the construction industry, which are then flowed down to consumers, whether it be renters or home buyers. Well, I agree that in many cases governments pursue efforts to ease internal barriers in ways that require lots of of hard work and detailed work trying to harmonize these rules and regulations there are easy options available to governments that want to exercise them and you know that's an option that uh, australia took in the 90s an option that was highlighted in a recent report by the senate of canada and that's mutual uh, recognition, just unilaterally recognizing credentials uh, and standards that are acceptable in another province. You just automatically say that if it's good enough for that province, then it is good enough here. So if Alberta were to say that a product that meets a standard or a certification in British Columbia is automatically deemed compliant with whatever rule exists in Alberta, even if it um, doesn't explicitly meet the Alberta standard. It's just deemed to because it meets the BC standard. And so that would be one way to really dramatically uh, wipe away a lot of what inhibits internal barriers. You just automatically recognize what is good enough in another province is good enough in yours. Well, Ryan brought up that interesting bun fight between BC and Alberta over booze. (laughs) We have a dispute resolution mechanism built into the Canada Free Trade Agreement. Is it not functioning the way it should be? 
Well, I, I think the Alberta and BC case, the wine, uh, the temporary wine boycott, if you will, that was an example, I think, not so much of protectionist um, efforts by the Alberta government, but an example of how, in many cases, trade and trade policy can be used to pressure other governments to change behavior. We see that in the international sphere you know, quite frequently. You know, sanctions on certain countries are are not done because we don't want more trade or because we want more protectionism. We enact these sanctions to to put pressure on uh, economic pressure on foreign countries. Uh, we see that with retaliatory measures against the United States following the steel and aluminum tariffs. It's not that we didn't want to import soy sauce from the United States. It's that we wanted to pressure the U.S. to change behavior on steel and aluminum. So with the wine uh, boycott, uh, which is effectively the Alberta government not buying wine from B.C. and because alcohol is distributed through uh, government monopolies, that is a huge a barrier to trade in wine. This was done to put pressure on BC to um, go easier on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, if you will. So BC was trying to block the construction of, of that project and the Alberta government wanted to pressure it to stop doing that. And I think in that case, you know, um, while there's certainly economic costs, boycotting wine is potentially a very smart move in that most of the costs of that move would be borne by the BC producers rather than Alberta consumers, which have a wide variety of, of substitutes. So in that sense, I actually think what Alberta did at that time was probably a wise move, given their objectives. Is the dispute resolution mechanism broken, though? Do we need to fix it? I think that what I mean, so what launching off of what Trevor was just discussing, I think it's incredibly valuable that when there was this sort of dispute uh, stemming truly from the, the pipeline, but sort of spilling over and it's perhaps a, a broader issue that provinces had recourse to an institution. They didn't start taking it out on each other informally um, and they could allow the rules of the CFTA to govern rather than relative economic might. Uh, during the 1970s, there were the infamous chicken and egg wars, where in order to protect uh, their respective uh, farming industries, provinces were blockading imports of eggs and chickens, and you know they were left to wallow in fields and rot because of the rules instituted. But in that case, it was before there was any mechanism like the CFTA for provinces to come and launch their claims and have it be adjudicated rather than it descend into these ugly trade battles um, that are governed by no rules of the road that can truly just evolve and harm everyone as a consequence of, of the policy. With respect to how the CFTA dispute resolution currently stands, it works quite well for when governments have issues with other governments and they can launch a claim and initiate proceedings. But as it stands now, it's a little weak for when individuals, individuals or individual businesses wish to launch claims. And this is really sort of taking what we already have, what's, you know, a 25 year project started with the agreement on internal trade back in 1995. Um, 
but which has evolved over time and the agreements text has amended and changed and was converted to the CFTA in 2017. And it's a work in progress. It continues to evolve and be amended and be used. And as it stands now, there's room for improvement, particularly with respect to the rules around how when individual consumers and businesses can launch trade claims against governments. Um, but um, there, and, and, and so that's essentially the, sort of the, the next phase, I would say, um, for the CFTA with respect to dispute resolution. Trevor, you write that migration may be central to how we recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic fallout from it. This is kind of related to this conversation as well about trade. Trade is, is more than, than just shipping goods uh, from one um, from producer to consumers. It's also about trade in, in services. And in some cases, it's it's about actually moving workers, so labor mobility. And we're seeing that, uh, at least in Alberta's case, you know, following the pandemic, we're probably going to have a pretty difficult recovery because distinct from other regions, the additional challenge for Alberta is low oil prices. And at least by the, by the looks of it, oil prices are going to remain significantly below where they were previously projected to be because of slow global growth due to the pandemic. And historically, when Alberta goes through tough times, we have a net outflow of workers. That's a problem for the economy as a whole, but the, the net outflow is really driven by a big drop in the number of people moving in to Alberta. So one option for uh, the Alberta government and governments generally to think about is policies that make it easier to move in. Uh, this would increase the size of the economy, increase the, the fraction of producers located in Alberta that supply uh, buyers outside. It would have implications also for overall productivity if skilled workers find it easier to move in. So during a downturn, uh, policies that, that make it easier to move in can help uh, facilitate that recovery and is related to these internal trade issues because many of the barriers to the movement of people are very similar to the barriers to the movement of goods and that's things like credentials and certifications. If you're a welder from uh, New Brunswick, you should be able to just move into any other province that you want uh, without having to go through a whole new set of skills uh, credentializations or courses or examinations. And uh, that's a that's a policy choice that provinces can make. And, and provinces like Alberta could move unilaterally just to recognize these uh, credentials that were provided. Is that, a, is that a policy choice? I was always under the impression that one uh, person's piece of paper didn't work in another province, more because uh, a union within one province wanted to protect its membership from outsiders coming in. Is that, is that not the way that usually no, plays I, out? I would say that's probably a fair way to characterize the underlying motivation for why governments have rules of this type. But if Alberta wants, it can... Uh, it can recognize the credentials issued by any other board or agency in, in other jurisdictions. So it's provincial laws that empower these kind of local industry or professional associations that allow them to have rules of this kind. And, and the province has the power to, to change that. So you need political will. 
which is difficult. Although we're seeing in Alberta, interestingly, we'll see if if the government follows through. But last year, uh, the government of Alberta moved unilaterally in many ways, removing lots of the exemptions that were listed in the Canada Free Trade Agreement and signaled that they would be moving towards broad national mutual recognition of a wide variety of professional skills and credentials. And then the premier went so far as to say that if this multilateral approach did not yield results, then Alberta would move unilaterally. I think the timing that they were initially communicating was that it would be sometime this year. Now, presumably COVID has changed some of some of that, but Alberta may uh, just move unilaterally and start to uh, eliminate all the regulations that prevent credentials from other provinces being automatically recognized here. I absolutely think that uh, a lot of this does boil down to political will. Um, if you even think about why we have a Canadian free trade agreement in the first place, it's because that there was no political will during the Charlottetown Accord to make the constitutional reform necessary to, liberal, to liberalize internal trade. Um, there just wasn't enough uh, there at the time. And it's uh, the classic Canadian compromise of you know, respecting uh, provincial sovereignty and autonomy while at the same time remaining cohesive and inside of an economic union. Um, but as Trevor hints at, there's uh, absolutely uh, practical challenges from within to making unilateral changes. That being said, there is a lot ample evidence of it being done. We saw Alberta and BC uh, negotiate and produce the, the TILMA, which is grown into the Western Canadian Free Trade Agreement, now termed the New West Partnership. That was unilateral action. It was unilateral action for both Saskatchewan and Manitoba to have subsequently joined. Um, and so there are instances of seeing it in display and it comes down to, um, um, in many ways, who who's um, in charge of a province at a given time and uh, I suppose their political priorities. Yeah, that's an interesting example about the New West Partnership and how provinces can join it. And that's unilateral action for for them, and maybe that is one approach to internal trade liberalization that we should think a little bit more about. Actually, late last year, so in December of 2019, I wrote a piece for the City House uh, Intelligence Memo series that looks at what the gains for Ontario might be if it joined the New West Partnership. And based on uh, the work that I've done with others at the IMF, we kind of tried to quantify what the benefit of the New West Partnership Agreement was for uh, the Western provinces. And we estimate that it might have lowered trade costs by about 2.3%, uh, which while modest, uh, of course, does yield some significant gains. So if we think about Ontario joining and then kind of naively thinking that they would experience the exact same average trade cost reduction of 2.3%, we find that Ontario's GDP might grow by about uh, $1 billion from even that modest reduction in trade costs just from them joining the New West Partnership alone. And internal trade volumes you know, between Ontario and the Western provinces overall would increase by about $7 billion per year. So even these modest gains through these agreements like the New West Partnership, they have some, some material benefits that come with them. Isn't labor mobility, though, uh, also a function of the industry? You know, some workers are more able to pick up and move. Wh which sectors ought we to be focusing on? So 
So I think in general, you want to focus on the sectors first where reform is possible, right? So there's there's barriers to labor mobility and there's barriers to trade that in some sectors are just explicitly you know, policy-induced, whereas in others, they have more fundamental barriers to them. You know, like low value, heavy goods, it's, it's just always going to be costly to ship them a certain amount of distance. Uh, and policy doesn't have a whole lot to say about that, although, of course, infrastructure quality can, can lower those trade costs. But we should focus efforts on areas where there are spillover benefits to many sectors. So if we think about a sector like finance, for example, this is a sector that is itself large and important in its own right, but it is also a, a supplier of inputs to many other sectors out there. Uh, and so gains to productivity in the finance sector has gains throughout the economy because those who buy inputs produced in finance, you know, business service inputs, they will see lower costs and they will see increased uh, productivity from those gains. So we should look at sectors that are big input suppliers as areas where we should focus efforts. I think that's part of why the federal government uh, years ago did put in a lot of effort to try and do uh, national securities regulation, for example. Uh, that didn't quite work out uh, given some of the legal challenges, but the effort was in the right place. Effort in areas that are big suppliers, so business services in general, um, finance just being one of them. Where the virtue of having a dispute resolution mechanism is that it's industry itself who alerts their home provinces and home governments um, to the barriers that they're uh, facing. And you want to have a system in place where when they encounter them, it's almost like they self-report um, and bring attention to and, and uh, uh, focus on the matters that they're that they're encountering, and which is why a dispute resolution mechanism that's uh, attractive and accessible is so important, um, because uh, it then encourages industry itself to um, and it offers them an avenue to bring a greater salience to a problem that they've been confronting, um, and you know with the potential end result of even launching a formal claim and having it litigated. Governments at the provincial and the federal levels are a little distracted at the moment with COVID-19. What's the risk of putting interprovincial trade on the back burner? Clearly, governments are right in the short term to focus on the, the health situation, on providing supports to individuals and businesses to bridge them through this crisis. So, I mean, there, there's clearly a priority here, and there are yeah, I, I guess I used to think of it as there were there were March and April problems for governments uh, early on in the pandemic, but now we're getting into the summer, and I think we're now reopening many areas of the economy, and governments are now going to have the capacity and the space to think about the the medium term challenges. I think at this moment, though, it is important for governments to think about uh, reforms to enact so that we can have a robust recovery once we get through to the other side uh, of this crisis. And, and given how exposed we were early in the pandemic to supply chain disruptions, to arbitrary policy changes by the U.S., for example, we've been reminded about the value of 
uh, internal trade relative to international trade. So I hope that governments do prioritize it. And the risk of not is that this kind of crisis moment will, uh, I guess, lose momentum in terms of reforms in all these other areas. And it's it's hard enough in normal times to make progress on on internal trade. And as we get further away from this situation, you know, the impetus and the value of expanding internal trade might um, might dissipate, at least in people's minds. I think the real value will still be there, but it won't um, seem as important. That's exactly it. While it's so salient in people's minds and while there's this spirit of unity, there's really an opportunity here to sort of take it to the next level and and expand the the scope of interprovincial trade rules, especially with respect to the distribute settlement mechanism, because in good times, um, it can be harder to make the necessary sacrifices to liberalize. And I think that while it's fresh in, in uh, the minds of the polity, it's 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 an important wave of momentum to to follow through on and to um, capitalize on. Trevor, Ryan, thank you so much for your time and insight. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Trevor Toome is an associate professor of economics at the University of Calgary and a research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Ryan Manucha is a Frederick Sheldon fellow at Harvard University. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, managing a pension fund through a crisis with heavyweight managers David Dennison, Jim Leach, and Henri-Paul Rousseau. That's a members-only webinar August 12th. On August 18th, We'll ask, what role does the housing market play in sustaining Canada's financial stability? With Darren Hanna of the Canadian Bankers Association and Michael Kahn of the Bank of Canada. And August 19th, globalization in a post-pandemic world. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.